Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You are listening to As A Woman, episode 94, Social Media with Mama Dr. Jones. Look, guys, Danielle Jones is one of my best friends. We are internet besties. She's an OBGYN. She's huge on all the social places. And I'm thrilled to finally have her on the podcast and kick off 21. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hey friends, well, we did it. We made it to 2021. I could not be happier than to start this year off with one of my besties. I feel like Danielle Jones needs no introduction. She is a board certified OBGYN. She has been practicing in Texas, although currently she's on a year long sabbatical traveling the world and doing some locums, which we will talk about. She is Mama Dr. Jones in all the places, has a fabulous educational YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram account. I adore her because she is real. She is no problem being herself and challenging you to do the same, to live according to your own goals, your own priorities, and not listen to what the collective masses may think is right for you. And for two people who are professional at being on microphones, we got interrupted more by our children and our dogs than anybody on earth should actually be interrupted while recording an episode. Nonetheless, here we go. Danielle Jones. All right. I am so thrilled to have Mama Dr. Jones, Danielle, my dear, dear friend on the podcast today. Danielle, thank you for taking the time out of your crazy life right now to talk. Thank you for having me. I feel like this is long overdue and I'm happy to be here to chat with you. I'm sorry I'm hard to schedule with. (laughs) I think we both are and that is okay. And what a year this has been. And I want to go into some of your backstory, but I want to start by just For people who don't know, I can't imagine anybody follows me and doesn't see me tag you in 5,000 things and doesn't follow you either. But for people who don't know, you're a board-certified OBGYN, and this past year, you quit your traditional job. You're still doing locums and still working shift work, but you quit your office-based practice job to go travel the world, and then COVID happened, correct? Yes. We had one-way tickets. We sold our house. We gave away everything we own and we were ready to go. And then COVID happened and we didn't have jobs and I had a non-compete. So we still had to move. And it's been a wild year for everybody, but it's definitely been uniquely wild, I think, for our family. I hate non-competes. I mean, we could have a whole talk just about that in and of itself is that if you think a job 
isn't right for you at the moment or isn't right for you forever. The whole idea that you cannot take care of patients in a certain area is just overall ridiculous to me. But I'm glad you're able to find a way to still practice medicine because I know you're a fabulous OBGYN and the world needs you taking care of mamas and babies out there. You have been driving around the country, is that correct? Yes, we bought a big van and we are just traveling around to the national parks and doing socially distanced activities like hiking. And it's been fun. And then I come back every few months and do a few months of locums and I'm applying to some international jobs. So we'll see how that goes too. Is this something y'all always wanted to do, the travel the world? It's not a very traditional, hey, I'm going to be the doctor and travel the world type of game plan. It, we have wanted to for a really long time, but it came after the doctor thing came. And so initially we tried to move to New Zealand right out of residency and that didn't work out very well because of the differences in medical training there. I would have had to take another training position until I was fully board certified and I wasn't willing to do that. So the plan after that for about the past five years or so has been after I got my board certification, we'd start looking for opportunities. And then COVID. Uh, <laughs> well, tell me this. Let's start at the beginning because I think people may know you now and they see this person that you are with the big family and the traveling van and your advocacy, but they may not know where you started. Did you always want to be a physician? How did you end up going into medicine? No, I wanted to, or I thought I wanted to be a psychologist and I majored in psych uh, in undergrad. And then I took a couple of classes that mimicked what grad school classes would be like with lots of research and really long paper writing. And I was like, this is not for me. I want to do more of the clinical side. And so I, at the same time, my stepdad was very sick. He had primary pulmonary hypertension, which is a very rare condition. And we had had to move across the state from the Panhandle of Texas to Houston my senior year of high school so that he could get uh, on the transplant list. And then my second year of college, he got a lung transplant and I got a real like quick overview of every aspect of medicine at that point. And that's kind of where I started going, like these people and their bedside manner, how they act really affects how we are doing through this whole process. He was in the ICU for like 40 days and he almost died. And we got, you know, taken to the private family room and talked to there. And I just really noted how the different nurses and doctors and their bedside manners affected me, but mostly my little sister and my mom. And that was kind of like, I can do this. Like I can get through med school. I can learn the things and then I can be a good doctor with good bedside manners. So that was kind of the jumping point there. It's so interesting how those moments shape us. I have talked before, Mike, I was in med school at the time, but my cousin was in a really bad house fire. And I remember being in that stupid private family room and how the different people communicated. They sent the residents in first to tell us that he had had a cardiac event and was brain dead. And it was really poor communication. I know we've been on that side of things. You have to learn it. But the words you say and the manner by which you say them and the little things that you do, look at the family, speak, you know, kind of like slowly and clearly and empathetically make a huge impact on how you receive the information. So that's, I think that's super impressive. That was like your critical turning point because for me, I I almost left medicine after that. Like these crazy people can't even communicate with me in these really hard moments. I'm not sure that I ever want to be viewed as that person. So I'm inspired that it, it actually, I think that speaks so well to who you are and what you stand for when it comes to being 
a physician and advocating for your patients is that communicating to them is one of the top jobs that we have. It's not just knowing the stuff and doing the surgeries or procedures. It's really being able to communicate to them on a certain level so that they know what's going on. Absolutely. Do you think, I think you are probably really similar to me in how you communicate. Do you think people who are more self-critical of themselves also can for some reason, kind of self-survey how they talk to people. Because I feel like a lot of why I have good, what I consider good bedside manner and what I've told been told is good bedside manner is because I'm extremely self-critical and I overthink everything that comes out of my mouth and everything that I do. And I think that helps me evaluate what I'm saying. Do you feel like that too? I agree. I think being almost hyperly critical, which could be a bad thing in a lot of ways, makes Absolutely. me really cautious of what I'm saying to people and how I'm saying it and where I'm sitting in the room and what, you know, back when we saw people in rooms, but all of those things, because it's it's very hard to give bad news. It's very hard to receive bad news. And I think that's how you do that it really is a reflection of, I don't know, a lot of insight to yourself too, right? I think I've been around physicians, we'll say who are maybe more narcissistic and I don't think they cared at all how their bedside manner was. They literally just presented information in the way that was the most efficient for them and they went about their day and I don't think they gave it a second thought. I think though you and I both probably carry, I mean, I know we do, we carry the bads with us. You know, I'll give bad news. I can't just brush it off. I mean, I will put it aside and go on to the next task because I have to but it like I bring it home. It wears on me. I feel that pain with the patients. I think it allows you to celebrate the highs too. But that's a hard part of our job because it is so personal and emotional at times. Do you find that to be true? Yeah. I mean, I think I remember every big bad news that I've ever given anyone. I remember who all was present, what the room felt like. I mean, things like, you know, full-term stillbirth and stuff like that. Like every piece of that puzzle I remember distinctly. I do think though it helps to, like you said, kind of celebrate the goods as well, because a lot of those patients end up coming back and we do get to celebrate together and that's really healing. I agree. You know, those highs are high. The lows are low. How did you, speaking of all these very emotional OBGYN field that we picked, you know, I didn't have a very straightforward path into the job that I have now. What about you? So you had this kind of life-changing moment with a family member that made you think maybe medicine was something that you could be great at. And then you went to medical school. Were you always drawn to OBGYN or did this develop over time? You know, I really went into medical school thinking I will be open-minded. I will try my rotations out and I'll pick whatever I like the most, uh, except gynecology. I will never be a gynecologist. (laughs) That is weird. And I also didn't have the confidence I thought I needed to be a surgeon. I thought I couldn't be a surgeon and a mom. And I just kind of crossed it off the list early. But then when I got to my third year rotations, I absolutely fell in love with it. And then kind of reevaluating my first two years of med school was like, well, yeah, I love reprofiz. I like the pelvic anatomy section of cadaver lab the best. Like it was, it all made sense. I should have known this is what I was going to end up doing. And I think it's clear from what I do, just like you, that I'm extremely passionate about it. And I still love it so much. I love learning all the new things going on in reproductive and gynecologic health. And I'm glad I chose it, but I I was resistant. I spent a long time trying to talk myself out of it. 
I'm curious about this because I know when I look back on my journey that part of why I did not pick OBGYN from the beginning was this idea that was both subconscious in my brain, yet also very loudly spoken to me by every single person that you should not pick OBGYN if you want to have a family, if you want to be a mom, that the lifestyle is too hard. And I really felt I wanted to be a mom. So I did feel like that was not on my list because I believed that people told me that. How was your impression of that? Oh, exactly the same. I mean, it it actually even came down to I fell in love with reproductive endocrinology on my rotation. And I still don't know if I actually loved REI or I loved the person who I was with on that rotation because she was like absolutely wonderful in every way. And she also had kids and she was the only OBGYN that I interacted with on my rotation that had young kids and had kids in residency or in fellowship and would talk about it. And so I still look back and I went in and you know this to residency thinking I was going to do REI. I did all the research. I got my application ready. And then I started falling in love with every specialty. And then I wanted to do gynoc. And then I was like, I love everything. I have to stay a generalist, but I, I still can't separate if it was her and her having kids or the field that I really was drawn to. I think that's one thing a lot of people don't realize is within OBGYN, how many subspecialties there are. And actually as a resident, depending on your program, you may get very little exposure to each given one. And then it's like, is it the content? Is it the person? You may love the content, but if you're attending sucks, you don't like it anymore. So it's very hard to separate the experience from the actual educational component of it. But I don't think I even, when I was like a med student, didn't realize there was, you know, REI, there's maternal fetal medicine, there's genonc, there's Eurogen, there's minimally invasive surgery, there's family planning, there's global health. I mean, there's probably more too. What am I missing? Um, But there's all these different pathways. If you say, hey, I find this passion, I can go on and do this. And I think that's so important because as we get older, we evolve and our interests evolve. And so one thing I realized being in the ER, I'm digressing, is that you can just be an ER doc. Like that's the job. You can leave emergency medicine and do something else, but there aren't these different facets that as you go through training, you say, oh gosh, I really love X, Y, or Z. And I know, I mean, everybody's like, oh, do you regret not delivering babies anymore? And I'm always like, no, I don't regret that. I'm happy to, happy to pass them off. And so I know, I know I made a very good choice for me. But um, some people, I just can't handle the risk. Let's say that. I guess I'm more risk averse than I really understood. And I actually practice very conservative medicine, meaning I'll order more things, we'll counsel a lot. I I probably see my patients double as my partner. Not that she does anything wrong, but I really like to have those face-to-face moments. I told you all these things can happen. These are all the possible outcomes. Let's pick the one that we all feel the best about. And, you know, OBGYN, I won the bloody knife at Parkland for doing the most C-sections. And I think it's because of the risk. Well, baby's not doing good on the monitor. Get the baby out. We'll be done with this risk scenario. And so I I did like the most C-sections my year, which is kind of like ridiculous because it just was so anxiety provoking for me. But I feel like you handle that. You're, You're much more calm than I am at times. So I feel like you probably handle that level of anxiety as adrenaline in a good way versus how I do. I definitely feel like I have a good poker face, but I don't know if calm, maybe calm in like patient clinical scenarios, but my former partners probably wouldn't describe me as calm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Um, speaking of, you know, having an attending who was open about being a mom when you were kind of going through training, when did you have your, you know, kids and wh- how did that play into things? Was that the timeline you were planning on it? Were just 
being a mom in medicine always feels very controversial. Somebody's going to have an opinion about the choices that you make for good and for bad. So what was your take on that? And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Yeah, I mean, people definitely had opinions that 
I shouldn't be trying to get pregnant when we were. And I really had wanted to have a baby kind of at the end of third year or middle of third year. And so we had been trying to get pregnant. I got married before medical school and we were both really young, but I knew I wanted to be a mom and I wasn't willing to put that aside for medicine. And my philosophy has kind of always been medicine is always going to be there. They don't owe you anything. They're not going to make it easy for you no matter where you are in training. So when you're ready, you should just do it. I mean, there's good times and bad times, but they're going to vary between persons. Like I knew I would not, I'm not good with change and not good with new things. And I knew doing an intern year would be a disaster for me. Um, and so I wanted to do it while I was in med school. And then we had trouble getting pregnant and I ended up getting on Clomid. And so that added in a whole nother level of people really judging us because we ended up getting pregnant with Clomid twins and people were like, well, now you're high risk and you, you know, you did this by choice. And I'm like, well, first off, I only wanted one and <laughs> that's fine. I mean, we chose to try to get pregnant. We knew it was a risk, but at the same time, like what? Yeah. It just, it was right for us. And that, that's all we really cared about, but you just I have to kind of block it out. Well, it's refreshing to hear you say it. And I tell people this all the time now, although on the contrary, I felt like if I had had a kid in my residency, it would have been extremely difficult just how the culture was. I know it has changed for people who are there currently, but at least that was my perception that it was not be possible, which of course now I don't think that's true at all. But what I tell people is there is never any time. You're going to think fellowship is going to be better. It's not going to be better because there you're trying to learn for the rest of your life. You think your first year out is going to be better. Oh my gosh, that's one of the hardest years that you're ever going to have. And so you can keep delaying that decision indefinitely. So at some point when you just feel ready in your personal life to have a family, you have to start trying because you don't know how hard it will be. I mean, you and I both had infertility. So that makes your timeline longer than you wanted once you are even ready. And it's just such a daunting thing. And it's not just medicine. I mean, I think I hear everybody in any type of career, you know, lawyers, teachers, everything that they say, oh, well, I mean, I have teachers who are like, I can't have a baby then. That's the beginning of a school year. You know, when do we let our careers dictate the timeline for which we grow our family? And it's just become society's way of accepting it, that we will put the demands of whatever the career is, you know, as tier one priority and then our own personal timeline or decisions as tier two. And I've always been so proud of you for speaking about that so eloquently, just like have your kids. Like, so let's, this is no debate. If you're ready for kids, just have them. Clomid twins, five to 8% chance. So those people should not have been blaming you. The highest probability <laughs> is that you would not have had two. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and having had now, you know, we had our twins in med school, I had a baby in residency and I had a baby as an attending in private practice. It's there's challenges to each of those. And I definitely think that the, the med school babies were a little bit easier as far as like managing rotations and stuff compared to being a resident or an attending. But then I went into residency with two six month olds. So it, it presents a whole, you know, extra layer. And I will say, you know, for me, I'm really thankful that I had my kids early on because I was ready and I wanted to. And I think I would have had a harder time if I had just been like balls to the wall, all OBGYN, because I know I'm extremely like one track mind. You and go I, all in. Uh, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that I had to learn how to balance that from day one and never was it just career for me. It was always career and family. And I think I would have had a hard time kind of restructuring that after I finished as opposed to doing it all along. So 
No, I, I think that's a really good point. I've always feel like I only look to the next step. Like I got to get through the pregnancy and have the baby. And then you don't think about how hard postpartum is. And then you're raising the child. You know, there's so much that goes into it. How did you manage when you were in training? So med school or residency? Did you have a nanny? Did you do daycare? How did you kind of balance that stuff? Well, the girls were born really close to the end of my fourth year. You know, when you kind of finish everything, you you're don't just have not doing anything anyway. <laughs> so they were born in December and then I had a couple of interviews left. So that was pretty easy. My aunt flew in and helped us for a few weeks um, while I finished up school. But other than that, it was just us. And then when I went to my intern year, we had an au pair who lived with us and she basically took care of the kids from like eight to five and then did night school um, at the college. And that was good because the girls were always home and we made sure to buy a house close to the hospital. And I was at a really family-friendly program. I mean, I purposely, Parkland is a whole different environment than like stop, where stop. I was. <laughs> I had a program where almost everyone had a baby by the time they finished and a couple, well, I knew one person who had come in already with a baby. And so that played a lot into me choosing that place. But she would bring them up to the hospital and I'd eat lunch with them or I'd run home at lunch or whatever. So it was, it was, it was manageable. And we just had her for that year. And then the girls started daycare at 18 months. I always have people, you know, asking me about, should I, you know, what, what should I say when programs ask me about kids or having kids or if I want kids or how do I evaluate if it's a family friendly program? And I know what I say, but I'd love to hear what, what advice you give younger women in medicine who are trying to make a decision and they know they want to have kids or they have kids, how they should go about looking that a fam- a program is family friendly or going to be fair to them. I think to, it's hard right now because everybody's doing their interviews, you know, Zoom. on Skype and stuff. Like, I don't know that I, it, my, my advice to that has always been like, just look around and see who has kids? Are they inviting families to the dinner the night before the interview? Are they bringing their kids to the dinner? Are people talking about their kids? Things like that. And then ask questions. You know, what do you do if your kid's sick or what's your coverage for maternity leave and things like that? And if people look at you like you have two heads, then that's not where you want to be anyway. So although programs really shouldn't be asking you in a formal interview if you want kids or if you're having kids or anything like that, if they do, I've always kind of taken the attitude, like I'm going to answer that up front. And if you don't want me because I answer that in a way that you don't want me to answer, I don't want to be here anyway. Exactly. I, I say the exact same thing. I think it is harder now. Although I wonder if people are being a little more politically correct because things are on zoom or potentially like recorded versus like in a random room where nobody knows what they're asking you. Yeah. But I always say if somebody's going to ask you that, then be honest about it. And if they are going to judge you, you don't want to be there anyway, because if that's an important life step for you, when it happens, how is that environment going to support you? So I think that question is telling of itself. I'm interested though, from Parkland standpoint, and you don't have to keep this in or not, but did you feel like when people would ask questions like that, I didn't interview at Parkland because I was scared. (laughs) So did you feel like when people would ask questions like that, that they would get an honest answer. Yeah. Our, the good thing about Parkland, so Parkland's one of the biggest, I think it is the biggest OBGYN residency in the country. So when I went through, we had 20 a year. And what everybody always said is the work hours are insane. You know, you're, whenever you come back to work, you're going to be working the same level. So you need to make sure that you've got your support system, your childcare, everything lined up because nobody here is going to treat you 
any different in a bad way. But on the pro, we're, we're a family. And if something's going to happen to you that's going to impact our family, we're all going to rally around you. And so we really did feel, even though Parkland's known to have a lot of hierarchy and it's known to be very malignant, what I found is in between your, like your own class is that if I needed somebody to cover for any reason, there were people who would do it in a heartbeat because they know that would come back around to them. And that's probably most residencies all over the place. There are some old school attendings who I think if they ask that question may feel really differently about it. But the truth is the attendings controlled so little of what happened there. I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but <laughs> I mean, your chiefs, your third years, your third years, like that's who really ran services and made decisions. The attendings didn't really care as long as the work got done and patients were being taken care of. So I know that in my year, we had like the most babies that had ever happened. And I think it was five when I graduated. So, you know, of the 25 people had had a baby at some point, which is a really high number. And then I know in years since then, it's been substantially more and earlier years along the training pathway. We started bringing residents on who'd already had kids or who were still in the middle. And that was almost unheard of when I joined. I kind of went to Parkland by default. I loved it. It was the right place for me. But that's where I went for ER. So I was there for ER. It's crazy, crazy ER. And then I transitioned over to their OBGYN department. So it's like I heard all these things, but I had already been up there and working with everybody. And so I was like, well, that's where I want to be. And I'm making this crazy transition. But I do think that um, there are some programs that I know, like when I interviewed for fellowship, that flat out asked me, you know, are you going to have kids during this fellowship? Because we don't want somebody to come here and take two months off. And I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, thanks. We're in the middle of infertility. I was like, we're in the middle of infertility. So goodbye. And one of the most telling programs to me was my my grandfather died. He had a stroke actually when I was interviewing for fellowship. And I was at a fellowship interview, had my phone in the bag, and I was um, in the Midwest. And when I came out, you know, you check your phone like on break. And I had like 500 missed calls, like from all my family members. And when I went to the voicemail or and I heard what that, you know, Gaga had had a stroke and he's in the hospital. And I knew like he had a DNR. I'm trying to figure everything out. And the the people I was interviewing with, like the quality of the applicants, like these women who I was on interview day with, um, got me a taxi, returned my rental car, got my luggage from my hotel room, changed my flight, like literally put me in a taxi with my bag and sent me away. And I made it back home to Dallas, like barely understanding how it even happened. And I'll always be thankful for the level of your peer support that you get. The fellowship director of that program told me if I was going to leave for a family emergency, I must not take my future very seriously when it comes to REI and that that was not going to be the right program for me. And I said, you're right. This is <laughs> not the right program for me. Like, But you know, and I was shocked that he would say something like that in a moment. And I think that those things are telling. If somebody's going to tell you that, it's not the right place. You don't have to sacrifice your entire life to be a physician or the type of physician you want. So I am really curious to kind of know this because I know how I started on social media because we became online friends first and then we progressed into this. I actually sent you a DM where you had asked me like back in 2017, like, I think I'm going to start a professional account, but I'm afraid of the invasion of my privacy, which just is the funniest thing because <laughs> we both share everything now, like to a fault. Yeah. Yeah. But you actually started on social media in the blog world a really long time ago, right? Yeah, I started blogging in 2009 or 2010 and blogged my way through medical school, which was incredibly weird at that 
time. I mean, people were blogging, but there weren't very many medical students or doctors who were blogging, especially not about their training and what they were doing and things like that. It was really weird. I remember getting in big time trouble for putting a picture of a sim lab on my Mm. blog. There were no people in it. It was just a simulation mannequin. And I got called to the principal's office and he's like, this is a liability. And I was like... What is happening? Because <laughs> I put a mannequin on the internet. <laughs> so yeah, it's it was crazy. And I was on Twitter and I actually got to go to some really cool, like when Doxemity was a startup, they invited me to one of their startups to be on a panel as a medical student on social media. That was like in 2000, I was pregnant with the twins. So it must've been in 2012. And we went to Stanford Medics that year. And it was super cool to be kind of an early adopter of all of them. That's so cool. Now, did you stop for a while in residency or did were you still using those platforms or did you kind of stop, take a break and then come on to the Instagram scene? Yeah, I had it like my personal Instagram that I posted stuff on in residency, but I was too busy with the twins and being a resident. I just really completely went on hiatus as a resident um, off of blogging and all that. In hindsight, I wish I would have had an Instagram because it's almost like microblogging. You can look back on it and see. Um, but I, I, don't I have didn't. Any I was pictures so and other things. I was just surviving, right? Yeah. I mean, I have a few pictures, but not, not like what people have now. So, and that was, you know, we're talking about like, it was, you know, historical, but it was only, you know, four or five years ago that I finished and a couple before that, that you did. So I, yeah, I don't know. And then, yeah, when I got into private practice, really, I wanted to start a professional Instagram because I couldn't do any marketing for myself at my private practice. And like, for some reason, that hospital had a rule. And so I was like, well, I'll start an Instagram to kind of educate and do some, you know, marketing and stuff like that. So I messaged you and you were like, be engaged. I know. I gave you like one word. (laughs) And now I understand why, because you were getting thousands of messages and I should have just been happy that you answered me. Oh my God. So no. in August 2017, I created the Mama Dr. Jones brand and started my Instagram. So it's so crazy when I so I started my you know this my Instagram in 2016 when I was ending fellowship under my sister's advice, just saying there are not many doctors in this space. There's a lot of people you know talking about voodoo medicine out there, and a lot of people are spending time here. And I think that they'd be very interested in what you do or what you have to say. So she kind of as my avatar pushed me along, but I didn't even have a personal Instagram. Like I didn't even know how to work Instagram (laughs) before I opened Natalie Crawford MD. So I legitimately would be like having no idea and asking her and like Googling all these annoying questions to try to even figure it out. And it takes time. I think everybody will see a platform like yours or mine and say, oh, I'm, I'm not growing at the right speed to ever get there. And so I'm just going to give up or I'm not going to do it. But it takes time. I will sometimes go back to my early posts and be like, look, guys, like this had, even now when people, it has like 107 likes, you know, like it's not that every post is going to be amazing, but each person who chooses to follow you, that's such um, an honor on the big scheme. I know we get a lot of trolls or anti-vax hate and all that stuff along the way. But the fact that people are truly interested in some of the things you have to say is a very powerful dynamic. It's completely changed my career And I know it has changed your career as well. And I feel like from my end, I've watched you grow on social media as far as, you know, initially maybe you shied away from topics that were controversial. And now I almost feel like you take it upon your mission to talk about the controversial things because if we don't, how are people going to be educated on these type of issues 
and make decisions. Have, have, do you feel like you've had a personal change as far as your account has grown on those things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had talked early on about like how, how to address abortion and stuff, particularly being that we both live in Bible Belt, Central Texas, and it could potentially have an effect on our actual patients and our patient practice to discuss those things publicly. And so I really waited until I was not in private practice to be really vocal about some of those things. And I still try to do it in a very educational way, not like telling people you should feel this way or you should feel that way, but more telling people like, here's why I feel this way. And I grew up in a super religious town going to, you know, Baptist church. And it has been a big journey for me just even figuring out how I feel about some of those more controversial or topics that get polarized, I would say, is a better way to put that. Um, But yeah, I think now I really, I think I've built a platform where people come and they trust that we can have a discussion and that if they disagree for the most part, I mean, there's obviously people who get real heated and and just leave, which is totally fine. I'm not for everyone. I never tried to be. But I think if people trust that you're there for conversation and you're going to be kind of coming with facts and not just politicized, like your body, your choice. I mean, as much as I'm pro-choice, I hate that saying. I don't think that that's an effective way to communicate what we're discussing. And it, it just polarizes further. So when you have somebody ask you about your social media presence, I have a few different questions. So besides the engage with people advice that I give people or I gave you, how do you tell people when they say, hey, I really want to do what you do on social media? What what are some advice or top tips that you give to, we'll leave it as, you know, healthcare providers who are interested in making an impact on social media? Well, number one is find somebody like Natalie Crawford that you can just make be your mentor and friend. <laughs> <laughs> and then she'll ask you to dinner and you'll be like, hey, can I come watch you speak? And it was more like, hi, I, with you. I signed you up to be on this panel with me and didn't tell you. Thanks for coming to dinner and letting me trick you. Um, no, but seriously, I think you have to find what you're passionate about. And so when you can talk about something that you really love, that's going to be conveyed easily to other people. And you need to be able to educate in a way that makes people want to learn things. And I think that's one reason I've been successful on various platforms is because I'm only just teaching things that I'm really passionate about learning and teaching myself and, and people can feel that. So if you're trying to be like somebody else or mimic someone else's style, you're going to fall flat every time because what people are looking for is a concise way to learn what you know and what you're passionate about. Um, And then just keep showing up. I mean, it's consistency and learning about the platforms. I mean, that's the number one thing when I do any new platform, you know, I have now a big following on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram, on YouTube. And every single time when I decide I'm going to invest in this platform, I start with podcasts, listening about the social media marketing side, learning the actual ways that everything functions, and then joining the community. And I mean, early on, I wasn't really trying to get the most followers. I would come to your page and see what you were saying. I think I had notifications on for you and a few other people. And when you would post something, I would actually give a really heartfelt response to it because that shows people, hey, this person's similar to you. I might want to go check out their page. And it's kind of just learning every little piece of the puzzle. I think that's such good advice. And I say something similar. It's different than just giving a heart, right? So you find somebody who is maybe in a parallel lane to yours, or maybe they have your ideal followers. 
and you heart their post, that doesn't really mean much to their followers. I mean, it's fine. But if you say, oh, as a fellow doctor, blah, 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 you know, somebody is going to see that and they'd be really interested and engaged in maybe the content that you're putting out. Okay, YouTube. So were you always going to go on YouTube? Was this just something that spur of the moment happened? Did something inspire you? I know we both have had complained in the prior life before we had other platforms that Instagram is so unsearchable for content. So you can give a really great post. It can be all about a certain educational topic. But if somebody doesn't catch it at that moment, it's so hard for them to then get that information they may be interested in. So I know that was part of my driving factor to start having other places people could find content in a more searchable fashion. But tell me about the start of the YouTube. How did it start? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the driving force as I was frustrated that content just lives a very short life on Instagram. People don't usually scroll back 60 posts and read what you wrote on the captions. So it's really like 24 to 48 hours for posts and 24 to 48 hours for everything else on Instagram as well. So I was kind of bored on my maternity leave. (laughs) That sounds (laughs) stupid to say. You're so high functioning that you're bored on maternity leave. (laughs) It was really that my kids, the other three were in school and daycare and I just had the baby at home and I would never at my house by myself and he would sleep. So I was doing really good like live chats and we'd answer a bunch of questions about VBAC and then a week later someone would go, hey, I have all these questions about VBAC and I'd be like, I can't even like direct you to it because at the time IGTV wouldn't let you upload an hour long video. So I decided I would start a YouTube channel and I spent several weeks like learning YouTube, engaging. And I didn't even know YouTube was like a community, but there are like communities on YouTube and and people are highly engaged in them and and really territorial and like want to get to know the creators in their space. And it's, it's a family. And I didn't know that at all. I didn't know YouTube was like that. And so I started learning that. And then I committed, okay, for uh, six weeks, I'm going to upload three videos a week. That was stupid Ooh. and way too much, <laughs> but I did it. And I decided I would look at my analytics after that, see what my impact had been. And if the time I was putting in was worth it and I found it to be worth it, but I went down to one or two videos a week after that. And that's been much more manageable. How do you feel like you have had such, I mean, you've had amazing success on YouTube and it's only going to keep growing, which is fabulous. What do you think has been kind of key to that growth? Is it engaging with that community? Is it telling stories in a different way? Like, what do you think it is that is drawing people? I think the key to YouTube is understanding the community and what they're looking for and what does well on their platform, because you can't just go on YouTube. I think a a thing I see with a lot of physicians and I'm definitely not directing this at you and you know that, but with a lot of physicians is that they think that because I'm the expert, because I know a lot of things, people should just follow me. Like I'm just going to get on YouTube and people are going to flock to me. That's really not how YouTube works. It's a younger audience. They're used to very high quality content because there's some incredible people creating content on YouTube. And you have to be bringing some element of personality to your videos. And you have to have an on-camera personality for YouTube. And I'm definitely different on YouTube than I am in real life. And I wouldn't say it's like a character, but it's a it's honing in on a certain aspect of my personality and just really putting it out there because that's what works on camera. And so I think that and following the trends, there's always trends, just like on TikTok, there's always trends and you just have to find them and make them work into whatever your niche is. Oh my gosh. So how many subscribers do you have as of right now? I am honing in on 700,000 coming up to my second year anniversary in January. That's amazing. 
mean? I mean, that's amazing. Now, what's your most popular video ever? Um, the first video I had that really went viral and probably is what took my channel to the next level was a reaction to, I didn't know I was pregnant. And so we do one of those every month and people really look forward to it. I mean, people are tweeting me all the time, asking me when the next episode <laughs> is. And it's a fun, it, they're fun for me to make and people enjoy watching them. So why did you decide to start your secondary Instagram about your family travel account? We really started. So originally I had considered making like a travel blog and then I, I just, I don't have time to sit down and write anymore. It's just not, I used to love it. And med school was my creative outlet, but that didn't really work out. So we kind of just transitioned that travel blog into just documenting our family. And we just want, you know, to inspire other people to do something different with their life. And just because you have a career that doesn't seem amenable to that doesn't mean you can't do it. And I don't know, mainly documentation and sharing with other people. When's your reality show coming out? <laughs> you call TLC and see if they'll hire me, even though I've taken all of their videos and re-uploaded them on YouTube. You've probably made them more popular that way than otherwise, more searches on their name. One thing that I've seen you become very vocal about is you know, equality and advocating for different groups of people and being inclusive, and especially in the trans population. How how was that journey? Did that come to you through YouTube or what what kind of sparked this desire for you to be such a fierce advocate for other people? Yeah, actually that's a really good segue from YouTube because what happened initially when I started my channel is that I would get a comment here and there and people would say, Hey, would you consider using more gender neutral or inclusive language? And my knee-jerk reaction was like, What? Why would I that is so dumb. No, I'm not doing that. And then I sat with it a little bit, you know, and thought, why are people asking me this? And it dawned on me that there's this whole population of people who need gynecologic care and feel genuine dysphoria and inability to consume that content and information that they so desperately need, especially because a lot of these minority groups are outcast in the medical system as well as in general society. And I thought, how how selfish of me to have a knee-jerk reaction that I can't say, you know, people who are pregnant instead of women who are pregnant and bring in this whole population of people who can't get this information other places because it causes them significant anxiety and stress. So I decided, all right, I'm going to just try it out for a little bit, try to make my language a little more neutral, try to learn a little bit more about this because we don't, I mean, we get a little bit of transgender and non-binary information. Mean- Zero. I mean, I got some in fellowship because we talked about hormone replacement and transitioning fertility preservation. But before that, I mean, zero. Nobody told me using the word person could be more applicable or make people feel included over, you know, gender specific terms. Absolutely not. And so then after, you know, again, I had to sit with it for a minute. And I feel like this is a really good lesson that sometimes when people leave comments and they make you mad, there may be a reason that you need to really think about why it's making you mad. And sometimes it's because that person is an actual jerk and you (laughs) you should block them. But sometimes it's because they're coming from a place of genuine, like, hey, this would help me or this might help you. Can you think about it? So I started doing that and then I started really kind of the same way I learned about how to take care of people with miscarriage and stillbirth. I started reading their stories. I started integrating into their communities and saying like, hey, I'm a physician. I'm just here to observe. I want to make my care better. You know, that's kind of how I learned how to take care of infertility patients and lost patients. And so I did the same thing with the LGBTQ plus community and they were so 
happy to teach me these things, even though it shouldn't be their job. They just were happy to have somebody in gynecology who cared to learn about it. And it has led to a really cool thing where my channel is very inclusive. People who aren't looking for it don't even notice. And the changes in my language were super easy for me to make. And I wish now that up to date and ACOG and all these places would kind of make these switches as well because it it really pushes people who need care the most away. I think it's interesting because as we started out by saying in medicine you aren't really taught this. It sounds almost like a dumb moment. Like yeah, of course, why would you not use neutral language? Like if that makes sense, but really that's not how you kind of just go through in speaking and other things to the even the extent of like our patient forms, even though we have thought they have been so inclusive, it's like, okay, describe you and then do you describe your partner, you know, female partner, male partner, no partner. And so I think like in the Austin community, we have one of the most, you know, inclusive forms, but because it's not just standard female, male, and there's still a lot of people who may not fit into that mix or who will say, oh, that kind of is driven this way. I mean, so now we just created this whole new online version being like, how do you best identify? Like, and do you have a partner? And how does your partner identify? And then really just kind of, you know, it, it's smart. So it can process what questions should go based on those answers. But the little things that you do that you don't even like, I promise so many people have never thought of their new patient paperwork. They've just handed it out for forever. But really it doesn't take that long to make little changes. What advice do you have for providers who are listening to this, no matter you know where they work or what stage they're at, if they want to be more inclusive on what they can do in their own practices and how they take care of people. So I think your point about the forms is a really good starting point for anyone and making sure that you have those reviewed by somebody in the LGBTQ plus community, particularly if you have someone in the trans community who can review them because they tend to be the people who are kind of not sure how to fill these forms out in the standard way that we typically run them. I think it's important to be an individual who is inclusive and willing to use pronouns. And I think asking for pronouns across the board on your paperwork is the way that you avoid having someone who would like a different pronoun use but doesn't know how to tell you that. Um, And, you know, listening to your patients who are trans because they often are few and far between, especially where we are. And if you have someone come through the office who has either a good, bad, or neutral experience, getting feedback from them can be really helpful as well. Bathrooms are always a big issue making sure you have availability of a unisex bathroom. I had a patient when I was in private practice and he was seeing me um, just for general care. And he said, you know, it's a real problem because all the bathrooms, we shared a floor with the pediatrics department. And he said, all the bathrooms down there are right by pediatrics and they are male and female. And he's like, I would really prefer to use the male bathroom, but I'm not super you know, masculine passing right now. And I feel uncomfortable because people's kids are going in there. and I don't want somebody to get the wrong idea or get mad at me. And I was like, you know what? I'm so sorry. We will work on figuring that out and making sure that we have availability of a single stall bathroom because, you know, he was clearly uncomfortable, not for reasons of his own, but because of the people around him. He didn't want somebody angry at him. And so I think those are important feedbacks to listen to. And then the number one thing is it doesn't matter how inclusive you are as a person. And this is a problem I had at my previous practice as well. You have to have everybody on board 
with what you are doing to make an inclusive practice. Everyone from the person who answers the phones to the person who schedules the visits to the person who does a checkout and billing needs to understand that you have a goal of inclusivity in your practice because it doesn't matter how great you are. The patient only spends 15 or 20 minutes with you or for you maybe an hour depending on the visit. If the person at the checkout desk is rude to them or refuses to use their pronouns, that ruins the whole thing. And so you have to make sure your staff and partners are also helping facilitate that. That's such a good point on medicine in general. I hear a lot of people feel like you can go through and you can be the best doctor and that is great. But really the patient experience is so much more than just you. It is the people who check them in, who check them out, who they talk to about financial, how their you know nurse or support staff treats them. And if they're not getting what they need from those people, they'll leave you even if you're a great physician. So it's very important that you bring those people into how you want to practice medicine overall, whether it is, this is how we communicate, bring these problems to me. These are the, we ask a pronouns, just ask. The hard thing that I have seen, and I would love, I've seen this online, but also just maybe in Texas is the contrary where I feel like, why should you care if I ask what your pronoun is? If your pronoun is she, her, just that's it. Answer the question and move on. But I do find there's this population of people who get offended by the fact that you're calling pregnant people, people instead of women, or that you're saying, why do you, why are you asking my pronoun? And I think my tolerance for that group of people has just gotten lower as time's gone on. Maybe, I don't know, how do you, how do you recommend dealing with those situations? The people who go and come in and comment about your pregnant people. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't see that so much in my clinic because if you're asking for pronouns on your paperwork, then people don't have much of an opportunity to complain about that. They just have to fill it in (laughs) or if they want to leave it blank, then, you know, that kind of signifies to me that they're fine with me taking my best guess. Um, But I think part of it is that when you do it online, you're talking to a large group of people, you know, it's public education. This is not one-on-one discussion. So something occasionally someone will comment, oh, you're erasing women. Well, I'm not erasing what? women. I, <laughs> I am a woman. And apparently the person making this comment is a woman. And if you're in my office, I will call you happily a woman. But the problem is that not every woman is pregnant or has pregnancy as a relevant concern to them. And not everyone who is pregnant is okay with being called a woman. And right. so it it only matters when I'm speaking to a large group of people, which is what we all do online every day. In a one-on-one setting, that person who's upset about it isn't going to care or know what's going on in the room next to them if I'm using somebody's pronouns, which come on, this is like basic courtesy. Like I, I get real pissed about it because like, why should you care if I am honoring what this person would like me to do. It has nothing to do with you. It doesn't affect your life. Just yeah, your care. So, I mean, it. you're fine. Exactly. And so, you know, I think it's the same thing to them. I'm like, it, it's really sad that you think it erases you to be called a person because this is part of the divisive and polarized nature of the world that we're living in right now, because we're all people. And we're kind of grouped after that. And if it hurts your feelings to be grouped as a person, maybe you should just make more room. It doesn't hurt you or exclude you to include others in this discussion. I just find there's so much 
polarization overall. And I guess, you know, it's been a crazy year, obviously with COVID and election. And it's so easy to be a, you know, keyboard warrior and just put stuff out there that it's very disheartening at times. I know I overall feel like being on social media has brought so much into my life, has grown a community, allows me to interact with people and fulfills my own personal need to want to reach people and educate them and help them make decisions that are right for them. However, there are times that it feels like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can deal with this side of things. Do you ever have to step away from social media? Do you ever set certain boundaries? Or do you feel like now it's just integrated in part of your entire life that you're able to just block and delete and you don't need to step away? I wish I was better at stepping away sometimes. Sometimes I get a little too uh, entangled in all of it. it has definitely integrated to be just a part of my life, another part of my life. But I think it's important to step back and and take breaks sometimes. And when it's really getting to me, I'll just disappear for a couple of weeks and everybody's still there when I come back and it's fine. Like, I don't know why we all have in our head that like, if you don't post for a few days, like your followers are all going to leave you. Most of them won't even notice until you come back and then they go, Oh, you know what? I hadn't seen anything for you in a couple of weeks. So yeah, it's important and something I should probably do better about. So let's summarize a few points. And then I want to say one other thing. So it's not an airport on social media. You don't have to announce your departure. And I know that that seems seems crazy, but I, I get this in this like mean retaliation. I'm now going to unfollow you because you talked about abortion. And I'm like, please do. You only follow people who are going to, you know, bring something to your life. And if my account is not, adios. But no, nobody, you don't need to bring that negativity into online spaces. I really feel like whatever, whoever we are, one of the pieces of advice we give to people is follow people who you enjoy. You enjoy their content. You enjoy learning from them. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say. And I love honest questions. People who are truly curious and want to learn and they want to ask a question. I have no problem with you having an opposing viewpoint than myself, but don't you come in my comments and be a bully or be mean about it. Like there's just no space for that. So number one, not an airport. Number two, be um, smart with how you engage. Like you were saying earlier, you know, like make the community what you want. And then I want to hit on one other thing before you breezed over it twice and I didn't even like catch on to it is that you probably get asked all of the time, how did you do this? How did you start your Instagram? How did you start a YouTube? How did you grow so big? And I want to make sure that everybody listening hears you when you say, you didn't just decide to do it and had overnight success. You watched YouTube videos on it, listened to podcasts on it, did a deep dive into what other people have learned about these various platforms, and then made content for that platform. You're not just putting the same piece of content in all of these places. You're saying, hey, this is what YouTube needs. So I'm making YouTube content. And we kind of glossed over that because I know you and I both have done that in the past and probably led to some of our success in other places. But I think that's really important for people to hear that you're allowed to Google and learn things and it doesn't have to be something that just comes natural to you. Well, yeah, it shouldn't. I mean, it's I should have a whole other degree now in these platforms for the <laughs> amount of time I've spent on each of them learning about them. I mean, I remember when I started a YouTube channel, I would get in the shower in the morning and turn on podcasts about how to create a YouTube channel, how to be successful on YouTube, how to make a good thumbnail, how to do your SEO, what to write in your description. I mean, it, it was endless, hours and hours and hours. And I, I did that for 
weeks before I posted my first video. Now you can't get so wrapped up in it that you feel like your video has to be perfect because it can also have the opposite effect where you just feel stalled and can't do anything. Um, but I think that's something that you and I have both learned really well is that you can't ever expect to be successful on social media as a physician just because you're a physician. It doesn't matter. There's too many really great people out there sharing information and you have to do it in a way that people want to hear and digest. And that's the important part of it. Okay. Well, you and I could talk all day because I don't see you enough since you're traveling the world and I miss you dearly. And we need to have mimosas at the ranch and we need COVID to be gone. I do want to take this time to tell everybody that, you know, we're about to announce something really special with Pinnacle. It probably will be announced actually when this is being heard. But do you want to kind of give like the little clue cliffhanger for what's coming with Pinnacle for people? I think anybody who's listening to this and is interested in the social media physician side of things, or even just like medical student, APP, anyone will be super thrilled to get to be a little bit of a part of this community because Pinnacle is such a big part of my life and your life, obviously. You said that you don't see me much, but we see each other, you know, digitally all the time. And I just, I think it's so cool. And this isn't so much Pinnacle, but let me just for one minute go on a tangent. I think it's so cool that, you know, three years ago, I messaged you and said, hey, I want to start a professional Instagram account. And then we just kind of clicked. We happened to live in close proximity to each other. We became real life friends. And then we got to create association of healthcare social media with other people that we met on the internet. And now it's a big 501c nonprofit and really the first of its kind in that space. And through that, we met Rupa and Pam. And now we have our own business together with the four of us with just the most amazing, incredible conference that I've ever been a part of, which doesn't say a lot because I don't do a lot of conferences, but you guys do. <laughs> and it changed my life. And I know that it's changed y'all's also. And so I just think that's that's the power of social media, that and learning how to be more inclusive and learning the things that we don't learn in medical school. And it's just so cool to me. And that's why I continue to do it, even when it makes me want to rip my hair out some days. Oh, I agree with you. I also think that one thing is people, I'll hear people have people say, and I know we got to end it, but we, oh, I don't want to do, I'm an OBGYN, but I don't see the need to put out content because Danielle's putting out so much great content. And what I always say is we each have our own individual reach. You know, the more that we are doing, we're going to capture different groups of people. And the more that we can spread, whether it's inclusivity or advocating for people, educating them, whatever the overlapping goals are, the bigger of an impact we're going to have as, you know, healthcare professionals who are on social media and whatever it is that our goals that we're trying to achieve. So don't see Danielle's awesomeness here and feel like you can't even compete with Mama Dr. Jones because you can't, but you can add to what she's trying to do. <laughs> so you you can join the club. And I will say that too, like the community behind the scenes. So not just how it's impacted my patients, my practice, my businesses, the other physicians and people who I've been able to network with and who I now consider really close friends. I mean, you and Rupa and Pam, I like text our group thread about things before I text other people in my life. Like, I feel like that is my go-to. I need support. Let me just put it here. And that really is a testament to how powerful things are. Okay. Tell everybody where they can find you in all of the places and hopefully Twitter will verify you soon. I've given up hope on Twitter, (laughs) but I'm Mama Dr. Jones on all the platforms and you can find me under that name with doctor spelled out in the middle. Okay. Love you so much. Thank you, Danielle. Bye, Natalie. See you soon. Okay, friends. Thanks so much for listening. I love Danielle so much. and I'm so honored she wanted to come and share little pieces of her life. 
I'm going to peer pressure her to come back and maybe we can do a Q&A and you can submit questions for her if you would like that. You should go follow her if you don't already at Mama Dr. Jones. You can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, on YouTube, Natalie Crawford MD. And as always, love you guys so much for your support of this podcast. Happy 2021.